It was great worshiping with you this morning. I love that perspective from the front of hearing everybody sing, and what an awesome opportunity to be here with you. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but I have a few things in life that I am passionate about. Someone once told me this, that I could be reduced down to simply the Chicago Cubs and snow. And believe it or not, my kids have picked up on those things, and they passionately hold those same loves because they've learned to love those things from me. For instance, let's talk about the Chicago Cubs for a while. I've had to work with my boys to help them understand that while we have some fun discussing the superiority of the Chicago Cubs over the St. Louis Cardinals, it is still possible for a person to be a good person and be a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Now, I've had to remind myself and them that just because a Cardinals fan is a Cardinals fan, it doesn't mean they're the enemy. This summer, my son was getting a ride to a youth baseball game, and the ride he was going to get with was with a very prominent and not quiet St. Louis Cardinals fan. So I had to prepare my son mentally for that ride in that car without making an argument. Why are my sons passionate Cubs fans? Because their dad's a passionate Cubs fan. And why am I a passionate Cubs fan? Because I'm smart. No. (laughs) I'm just joking. It's because my mom and my older brothers are passionate Cubs fans. How about the snow? My kids love the snow. One of my favorite memories is in the middle of a snowstorm, my daughter, Chirsty, at about three years old, suddenly ran out onto our back porch with no shoes on, singing on the top of her lungs, the cold never bothered me anyways. (laughs) My older boys will often say, I'm Norwegian. I'm immune to the cold. Well, where do they get that thinking from? From their dad. I spent a lot of time this week just being super thankful for my own father. I had the privilege to take him for a heart operation. And so while we were at the hospital, as I was sitting there thinking and praying for him, I couldn't help but think about the influence that my dad has had in my life. For instance, I'm in ministry for a large part because of the influence of my dad. My dad was never a pastor but he was a faithful servant in the church for my entire childhood. He was a volunteer chaplain in the prison system in Illinois. He was regularly looking for ways to serve others, and as a result, I learned from him how to love God with my whole heart, soul, and mind. And then I learned how to love others by serving them. And I hope in the end, that's something that will be a lesson that my kids will say they learned from me. We're continuing our series for Stewardship Month this week by talking about the stewardship of the next generation. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 78? Psalm 78. That's page 425 of the front section of the Bible located under the chair in front of you. We're in the middle of our Stewardship Month. Our stewardship celebration is next Sunday night at the fairgrounds, and we hope that you'll all uh, show up and be there as we can just praise God about the ways that He's working in our church family. 
And so as part of our stewardship month, we focus on four stewardships of principle, or four principles of stewardship. It's all the same. It's okay. God owns everything. You own nothing. There's nothing in your life over which you can say, mine. One of my kids has learned this principle all too well and reminds me of it often. We'll be at home and I'll say, hey, please go put your gym bag in my car. And he'll pause and say, it's not your car. It's God's car. Number two, God entrusts you with everything that you have. Number three, you can either increase or diminish what God has given. He wants you to increase it. And number four, God can call you into account at any time, and it may be today. Let's think today about the responsibility we have to steward well the generations that are coming behind us. Let's read Psalm 78, 1 through 7. It says this, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Let's spend our time today thinking about four essential elements of stewarding the next generation. First of all, It begins with our own ears. It begins with our own ears. I have learned after several years of communication that the way that someone starts a conversation is of utmost importance. For instance, when my wife comes to me and says, Buns, I think we really should talk about blah, 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 blah. I know that conversation is going to be a whole lot better than when I get a phone call from a boss or a seminary professor saying, please come to my office, right? We, we understand that. Or as a child, if someone called you by your first name, then probably it was okay, but once they insert the middle name, you know what's about to come. So I want you to look at the way that Asaph starts our passage today. Look at verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Here's how he starts out the conversation today. Be quiet. Like, shh. Stop talking. Don't jump up and go do something else. Just listen. In order to be the most effective teacher that you can possibly be, you have to first be an effective listener. The expectation of the teacher is that they've learned the material well enough to teach the material. For instance, when we prepare the sermons for the three different campuses, here's the process that we go through. On the Wednesday before we're going to preach, we'll receive a packet from one of our pre, from one of the pastors here who's taken the time to do some of the back research process on looking into the original languages, looking into commentaries, finding things that will be helpful for us as we prepare the sermon. Then on Monday, our preaching team meets to talk through the things that they've learned from that passage. Then on Tuesday, the individual preachers from the various services write out the sermons that they have been learning about from the passages in the last several days. So what do they do? We start by first listening to what God's Word is saying, 
and then we prepare to teach it to others. Have you ever been in a situation where someone was trying to teach you and it was obvious they had no clue what they were talking about? You ever been in that situation before? Don't think about a specific person. Just have you ever been in that? Like we've been in that situation. It doesn't work well. So how do we do this? How do we begin by listening? Well, first of all, we need to seek out wise teachers. Seek out wise teachers. We live in a day and an age where everyone gets to have a loud voice and they get to sound like an expert. I'm going to give you the simple, here, here are five simple steps to gaining influence without any credibility. Number one, get a social media profile. Number two, post a few cool pictures and videos. Number three, get an audience. Number four, talk about whatever you want to talk about. And number five, people will believe you that you know what you're talking about, right? All of a sudden, we have people who believe LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan just because somebody said something on YouTube and they run with it. Here's a simple truth to consider. If you want to teach truth, then you have to listen to what? Truth. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 15. He said this, let the Pharisees alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Let's think about how that applies in our life. In your life, what are the voices of influence that you allow to speak into your thought process? Are you regularly ingesting humanistic philosophies that are teaching you a me-first approach to life? Guess what? If you are, then those things will come out in the lessons that you're teaching the next generation. Even if you say all the right things, but your life shows something else. Remember this. You were never fooled by the person who said one thing and did the other, were you? Do you think the next generation will be fooled by those who say all the right things but live completely contrary? Are are you allowing yourself to be entertained by things that would be contrary to what you would counsel a younger person to do? I am always amazed by this fact. People will encourage their children to live a pure life leading to a Christ-honoring marriage, and then they'll allow entertainment that screams a very different philosophy to sit in their living rooms night after night and preach a very different message that will ultimately result in destruction. Friends, listen, if you want to be able to teach the truth, you have to first fill your mind with the truth. If you want to reflect to the next generation the truth of God's word, then you have to be consistent to be ingesting what God's word says. Or how about this? Are you regularly ingesting a message that says, you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I want to believe? In other words, your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. Yay, us. Right? Like, is that what you're doing? Guess what? That will spread down to the next generation. Our verse tells us that we need to be actively seeking out the good message. We're told to incline your ears to the words of my mouth. In other words, be looking for it. Be straining to hear every last bit of it. You can't get enough of God's truth. Now, how do you know that the teacher is teaching biblical truth? Well, you have to listen to biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is not just listening to opinions. 
It's listening to the truth that's anchored in the Word of God. Look at the text for a minute. We're called to incline our ears to several different things in this psalm. First of all, to instruction, then to parables, then to the dark sayings of old. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We're supposed to listen to the teachings of the Father, the testimony in Jacob, a law in Israel, the commandments to our fathers. What are all of those things referring to? To the Word of God. When you look for wise teachers... Make sure that they're not just spouting out the philosophies of life that they want you to cling to, but rather make sure the teachers you're listening to are teaching the truth of the Word of God. So how do you do this? Well, make sure you go to a place where you know that's the teaching that's going to be taught, right? Go to a place where you know that's the case. So let's think specifically in application to us at Faith Church. For instance, if you're a mom, And you're trying to figure out, how do I navigate life as a mom in a way that's going to glorify God? How can I possibly point my kids to follow after Christ? Well, how about something like mom to mom, right? A place where you're going to get wisdom from the Word of God. Or or maybe you're in a different stage of life, or you have a different need that you're concerned about. And so how do you find the way to navigate and to learn about this? How about going to an FCI class or getting plugged into an ABF? Or men, if you're constantly trying to fight the battle to be the kind of man that God wants you to be, how about joining a point man group or going to men of faith? Or how about just grabbing coffee with the person who will encourage you to walk in the Lord? If we want to be successful in helping the next generation, we first have to be the best at listening to the truth of God's Word. So how do we steward this opportunity? Well, it requires us to speak. What good would it be for me to develop some sort of amazing, world-changing thing and then never share it with anyone else? Let let me illustrate with something very world-changing. Let's say I worked really hard to develop the perfect chocolate chip cookie. Okay, Let's say I spent four years of trial and error and weight gain. I was looking for the perfect balance of chocolate chip cookies Uh, chocolate chips to the batter, right? Like it had to be a dough that's delicious even without the chocolate chips. It has to be crunchy on the outside and soft on the inside. It has to be big enough to make you think you only need one to be satisfied. It has to be just as delicious when it's warm right out of the oven as it is after two days of sitting in a container on the counter. And let's say I made it one time and I never made that recipe again and I never told anyone about the recipe again. What good would it be? Like, when I went away, so does this amazing chocolate chip recipe. And someone else would have to put in all the work and the weight gain to get to the right place to be able to make this cookie again. Well, the same is true if you learn all kinds of wisdom and knowledge about how to live your life for the Lord, and then you do nothing with it. Look at Psalm 78. Here's a couple of excerpts from verse 2 and verse 4. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. We will not conceal them from our children, but tell the generations to come. When we teach what we learn, then we're helping the generations to come. However, or you might be able to explain all kinds of nuances of theology from God's Word. 
You, you might be able to, in your mind, have a great understanding of what justification is or what sovereignty is and how sovereignty balances with free will. Or you might even be able to explain the incarnation. But how much more impactful will it be if you're able to take the things that you understand and teach it to the next generation so they can understand the things that you understand? And I realize that at this point, some of you might be sitting here thinking this. I hope all the Sunday school teachers for the little kids are listening right now. Or I hope all the youth group leaders are paying attention right now. Or I hope all the parents are listening. But listen, I'm actually talking to you. The, the person in your chair with your clothes on, you. I'm talking to you. All of us who have a relationship with Christ have a responsibility to be training the next generation into the things of Christ. It'd be impossible to teach the next generations, though, if you haven't first cultivated a heart for the next generation. How, how do we get to this point that we care about the next generation? Well, first of all, you have to have a thanksgiving for those who have gone before you. You have to have a thanksgiving for those who have gone before you. It was... Awesome to hear Doc Smith on that video talking, right? I, I had the opportunity to have Doc Smith as a person observing me in my counseling preparation. And the wisdom I would learn from him after I would say all kinds of stuff in the counseling room and then he would bring it back and help at the end. Like, I'm so thankful for that, right? Are you thankful for the generations before you? Our passage has a tone of gratitude that's directed towards the fathers, a thanksgiving for the men and the women who had taken the time to pour into them. And here's the problem. If you have nothing but a bitter contempt for the generation that came before you, then what are you going to display? We're going to display a contempt for the generations that will follow after you. Consider this thought for a minute. When you're constantly critical about those in leadership over you, what are you teaching with your actions to the next generation? You're teaching them to be critical of the leadership over them. So when as adults we spend all our time criticizing the way that the leaders in your life do things in the way that you think they shouldn't do them, or if they do things differently than how you would do them, then don't be surprised when the next generation grows up and is critical of what? Your leadership. I'm not saying that you can't teach your children how to assess for the sake of learning the biblical ways that they should handle certain situations. However, when you are constantly critical of everything, do not be surprised when your kids are also critical of you. Here's something I've noticed is just a general observation. Have you ever noticed at the end of every ball game, it's always the ref's fault? Have you ever noticed that? Like, I mean, the refs have the worst record ever for wins and losses. Or, or when you struggle in school, it's always the teacher's fault. Or it's always someone else's fault. Well, let me say this to you. If you're demonstrating that in your life, don't be surprised when the next generation demonstrates that as well. Conversely, when we cultivate genuine gratitude for those who have sacrificially instilled biblical teaching into our hearts our focus will naturally turn to do the same. 
It's our responsibility to be grateful for the godly influences in our lives and in the lives of the next generation who consistently point people to the truth of God's word. Are you thankful for it? I think often of the pastors in my church when I was growing up with gratitude. I had the opportunity last year at um, the ACBC conference to run into the pastor that was the pastor of my church up until I was in high school. And I had an opportunity to sit down and just share with him how much I was thankful for his influence in my life. Like, that was an incredibly great thing. I I think often of my Sunday school teachers and my Awana leaders who were teaching me the truth of God's Word. Did they always do everything perfectly? Absolutely not. But I should be grateful for the ways that they continue to point me to the truth of God's Word. Our thanksgiving for the previous generation will then result in a concern for those who follow you. This takes sacrificial humility, the kind that isn't natural to us. How much effort should be given to raising the next generation even in your own home? I want to share a passage with you that could have been the context for our entire sermon today. Titus 2, 3-5 through says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, here's the principles. It's talking specifically to the wives here, but here's the principles for us to think about. We very much live in a society where the most important things we do tend to revolve around the job or the hobbies that we keep. So we go to work all day and then we bring home the leftovers of our energy and our strength to our families. We come home, we have no energy left to do our most important job of the day, which is training the next generation. Well, we should begin to develop the habits in our life that will tell our jobs and our hobbies no instead of telling our kids we don't have enough time for them. Do you have a passion for the next generation? Do you? Remember, we said this earlier. This is not just for Sunday school teachers or youth leaders. Do you have a passion for the next generation? I want to share with you a few reasons why the church ought to have some concern for the next generation. This is from a research article done recently by the Barna Group. Okay, Here's a few of the reasons why. First of all, this particular generation of teenagers are especially connected to technology. In fact, instead of calling them teenagers, now the term to use is calling them screenagers. In other words, here's what this means. They have always lived their life with the internet and smartphones. How many of you remember dialing like this? You remember that? Okay. Some of you might remember other ways. Okay, whatever. Like, depending on where you are in that, you remember a life without the internet and without smartphones. They've always had that. I was telling some teens just this week that I was alive before Google existed. And they, like, thought I saw dinosaurs in my childhood. Right? Like, so think about that, right? Like, like that's where they are. 57% of teenagers use screen media more than four hours a day. 57%. 26% of teenagers use screen media more than eight hours a day. 
by the way, this is also the first generation to be raised by parents who are also on their screens. Now, how much uncontrolled influence is able to happen in that much screen time? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about the commercial that pops up all of a sudden that teaches a very different message than what you teach? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about the video that comes up next after the one video that they just saw that was okay for them to see? What's that going to be? And I'm not saying that screens are the enemy. I'm saying, though, that there's a whole lot of influence happening in those hours of screen time. Should we be concerned about that as a church? Should we be concerned about what influence is speaking the most into the kids' lives? Eight hours a day of screen time. That doesn't leave a whole lot for any other influence. Number two, the current worldview of being held to by teens is increasingly less and less godly. We now live in a world that is called post-Christian. Meaning this, Christianity is no longer the major influence in the public square of thoughts. Teenagers are twice as likely to claim that they are atheists than adults are. Why? We're living in a post-Christian society. So churches need to be consistent with the gospel and the teachings of applying the gospel. I, I spent 19 years as a youth pastor, and one of the most alarming trends I saw was the haste at which teens would shed the beliefs of their parents and their church as soon as they reached a stage of independence. Should we be concerned about that as a church family? Absolutely. Here, here's a, a third thing to be concerned about. Identity and the identity crisis. 33% of teens believe that gender is how you feel inside and not the sex that you were born with. 70% of teens believe that it's acceptable to be born one sex and feel like another one on the inside. Now, it is important that we be sharing the truth of the fact that each individual is fearfully and wonderfully made and that God has a purpose for the way that he made you. Should we not care about that as a church family? We should care about that. Here's another reason to be concerned. Parent relationships. Teens are saying that while they admire their parents, family is not central at all in the way that they think about life. They say it this way, I love my parents, but I'm going to find role models somewhere else. This generation has a staggering number of broken families and distant parents who don't stay engaged in their children's lives, right? Remember the screen time thing? A whole lot of people raising their kids with screens instead of being there. What a chance for some godly people to step up and become the role models that these kids are looking for, Right? Should we not be passionate about that as a church? Absolutely. Here's a fifth reason. The most important thing for the majority of teenagers today is success. Most teens view happiness as their ultimate goal. And how do they define happiness? Happiness is found in financial gain. So their personal achievement is of more value to them than their family or their religion. Now, if your response to those statistics was to think this, see, I knew these kids were messing it all up, or, oh boy, are we in trouble when they're the voting majority, or I'm glad I'm not raising kids now, or we didn't have this problem back when, blah, 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 
then you're missing the point. I think we should instead have the attitude of Christ that is filled with compassion for this generation and wants to reach this generation. They need the truth spoken to them, but they also need us to speak the truth to them in love. Do you know how easy it is to say easy things? Think about at home when you announce to your family that tonight is a dessert night. That's pretty easy to say, right? It's not as easy as the night when you have to say, tonight we're having Brussels sprouts, right? Like, like that's a little harder. Well, regarding more serious matters, it's even more difficult to say hard things in a loving manner. So how do we do that? Well, we have to find a way to connect with them. We have to find a way to speak the truth to them in love. And we have to do this by teaching the next generation. Everybody in the next generations to come will be learning something. It's our responsibility to make sure they're learning truth. It's necessary for us to be speaking the truth in love as Ephesians 4.15. But we have to speak, right? We can't just like in love, we have to speak the truth in love. That's how truth is imparted to the next generation. So <clears throat> let me ask you a question. Do you speak the truth to the next generation? If so, what evidence do you have of this? Would anyone point to you as being biblically influential in their life? Is anybody capable of saying this? I love Jesus more because of so-and-so. Or he taught me how to live like Christ. Or she led me to the Lord four years ago. If the answer is no, is it too late for you? Well, certainly not. But you can't wait. Right? Imagine going fishing with someone. They're going to try to catch a world record bass. Okay? And so you go out, probably not anywhere in Indiana. Okay? You go somewhere where they have lakes, Wisconsin or something like that. Okay? So you you go there, right? You put your boat in the water, you get out there, and then you just sit in the middle of the lake just waiting for that fish to jump into your boat. Would you ever catch the fish? Please tell me you know. It might be a carp, but that's it, right? Like, you're not going to catch a fish, right? What would you tell the person? We better get your fishing pole. You better get to work, right? The same is true as we're going to teach the next generation and you're doing nothing about it. Guess what? It's not going to happen. Get your fishing pole and get to work. Next, pursue the next generation. Have your ears attentive towards biblical knowledge and cultivate hearts for those who would follow and lovingly engage with them, talk to them, seek them out, find ways you can be a part of their life. Teaching God's word and do it in a loving manner because, as our text makes it clear, what we say matters. Verse 4 says it all. It says this, We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. Here's a three points we need to draw out from this. First of all, our focus has to be on worshiping the Lord. What good is it if you teach your kid to be a faithful steward of his finances or his time or his abilities or his intellect, but you don't ever connect it back to the gospel? Like, what good is it? Do they know the why behind why they do it, right? We teach them that everything in life is ultimately to bring glory to God. So are your kids learning to be good stewards of their money so they can retire? 
Are your kids learning to be good stewards of their money so they can have a yacht like their favorite YouTube star? Or are they learning to be wise stewards so that they can glorify God by using the resources that God has given them wisely to be generous and to be able to care for those around them? You see, the gospel has implications for all aspects of life, and it's our goal to connect the dots for the generations to follow. Why should I speak in a respectful manner? Because Christ paid a high price for my wayward tongue. He wasn't crushed on the cross so that I could speak evil of those who were created in the very image of God. He bought my freedom so I could glorify God with my tongue. Right? Connect it back to what matters, worshiping God. Whatever the situation is, our focus has to be the praises of the Lord. So how do we do this? Well, we use our teaching to point to his strength and not our own. This is a psalm of Asaph. One of the most common examples that the psalmist used when talking about God's strength is the ability of God to help the Israelites through the oppression of the Egyptians. How were the Israelites removed from the enslavement of the Egyptians? Did they form a labor union and demand better working conditions? Is that what happened? Did they reason with Pharaoh and eventually came around to their side of things? Did they rise up and lead a giant revolt and overthrow them? No. What happened? God sent Moses to begin freeing them against their own will. God's strength redeems. God's strength sanctifies. God's strength sustains us. But whose strength do we point to while we're training the next generation? We have to humbly admit that we are unable to do anything apart from Christ. When someone relies on their own strength for salvation, it's useless. So we have to admit our own inability to be made right with God on our own strength. And then we need to turn the conversations to make the conversations be all about God's strength and how it enables us to go on. Next, we need to do this while recalling all that he has done. Recall all that he has done. How often do you open the Word of God with anyone? How often do you open the Word of God, literally or metaphorically? You can't recall his wondrous works that he has done with the next generation unless, guess what? You recall the wondrous works that he has done. If you never talk about what God has done, then you're never going to be able to recall all that God has done. It's never enough to simply know a lot about God. It must translate into what we say and do. Why? Because what we do matters. What we do matters. This is the conclusion of our passage for this morning. Asaph is making clear the purpose of God's law. Look at verses 5 through 7. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. He can hardly overemphasize the essential purpose of teaching God's character and his word to the next generation. And to no surprise, we started by listening, but now we're being commanded to do what? To act. 
complacency leads to a lack of desire to fight against what is wrong. If we have a generation that says, we recognize all of these problems, but we're going to do nothing about it, then guess what will happen? The next generation is going to be progressing further along into rejecting God. In other words, when we don't apply any effort towards stewarding the next generation, then we're opening them up to another teaching. And since this world is filled with teachers... Any other person seems happy to step into the role of teacher for that generation. This last section is a self-assessment. We can't presume to be teachers of the next generation or argue that we care about them if we don't live in a way that is consistent with the calling. The saying goes this way, more is caught than is taught. God's Word is arguing that we should do both. We teach by modeling godliness and teach by preaching godliness. And we spent a fair amount of time talking about how to teach the truth of God's Word. But now let's think about how we model that. First of all, we do this by knowing if our confidence is in the Lord. Where does the Lord choose to test our confidence? Through trials. How I respond to difficulty shows where my confidence is placed. If my life is characterized by anger or anxiety when trials come into my life, then where is my confidence? Well, it's on anything but on the sovereignty of God. It has to be in myself or something other than God because why else would I go on being angry or anxious if things aren't going my way? But if your confidence is in the Lord, then guess what? You trust in His sovereign control over your life. The next generation will see your confidence as you deal with trials. And guess what? They will know that He is worthy of their confidence. Some of the most influential people in my life have never once taught me in a class that I was sitting in. Some of the most influential people in my life are people that I watched as they handled trials in their lives in a way that ultimately pointed others to Christ. And how about the second point? Do I know the works of God? Asaph warns about our forgetful tendency here. We're to teach others not to forget the works of God. Have you ever noticed how quickly you forget things? As I get older, I notice I forget more than I used to forget. You ever been asked a simple question and you struggle to remember the answer? Like, what is your child's date of birth? You ever been asked that at the doctor's office? And you're like, uh, I know they're mine. I was there. It was like this time of year. I can remember what I was wearing, but I can't remember the date. Right? You ever had that situation? I, okay, maybe just me. So to remember things, what do I do? I have to do a lot of things to remember stuff now. I have to write everything down. In fact, often people come and talk to me and I'm in a place where I can't write it down and I'll say this to them. Please email me or I will forget, right? Like, like I have to write it down. Then I have to put it in my calendar. Or, or do you do this one? You get a phone number and between the time you're going to type the phone number into your phone, you forget what the phone number was, right? So then do you have to repeat that phone number over and over and over again until you get to the phone and you dial it? Do you do that? I don't know if you knew this now on smartphones. You can just hold the button for the phone number and it will call it. But I, I just learned that. It's okay. Why does God repeat basic truths over and over again? Why, why does God continuously repeat them throughout Scripture? Here's why. It's because we're forgetful people. And you know how quickly we can forget the works of God. You can't forget. Here's, here's another factor I want you to think about. 
Friend, if you are here and you're struggling to go through life, caring to teach those in the next generation, let me remind you of something. You can't forget that which you've never known. If you can't recall God's works, then it might be that you have never learned of God's works. It might be that you don't understand. And let me say this to you. If that's you and that's your situation, then we want to have the chance to share that with you. Please find one of us and one of the service pastors. We'd love to talk to you and to show you that. This last point really hits home. Do I keep his commandments? Do I keep his commandments? As you learn, do you do? The very truths you're instilling in the next generation, do you walk in them? Nothing undermines teaching quite like hypocrisy. Don't just tell people how to live. No, live and show them through the way that you live your life. Proverbs 23, 26 says this, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Do you care about the next generation? What are you doing about it? Are you showing the next generation what you have learned? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the incredible responsibility we have to steward the next generation. Lord, thank you for the fact that we can look through a heritage even within our own church and within many of our own lives of people who were faithful to steward the next generation. And Lord, help us to be faithful like that for the generations to come. Lord, help us not to just know the truths of your word, but help us to teach the truths of your word. Help us not to just talk about the truths of your word, but to model the truths of your word. And we ask all these things in your name.